Now, let me ask you a question. Are you frustrated with how long it takes to get stuff done in your construction company or with how chaotic or confusing things seem to get? Well, then let me tell you about a much better way of getting work done. And let me tell you about an amazing tool that will help you overcome the frustrating log jams in your construction company. Sweet Process is a simple but powerful tool that lets you create clear step-by-step instructions for every task in your construction company, from writing proposals to executing client work to responding to client requests, so everything gets done more easily and more reliably. Plus, you'll have a central place where everyone who works with you, your employees, contractors, and even virtual assistants can access your procedures anytime from any device. The best way to understand how Sweet Process streamlines your work is to start using it. The company offers an amazing 14-day free trial, but as a loyal listener of this podcast, you can try for 28 days free of charge. You don't even have to enter a credit card to get started. Just navigate to sweetprocess.com backslash AFT construction to start your free 28 day trial today. And that's a catalyst to change, in my opinion. I mean, you can sit there and wallow and hate on the world or hate on your circumstance or where you're at, or you can make the decision to grind, as you say, or the change is never easy because it causes forced reflection upon yourself to get better. You're going to have to dig deep. I, I sat there, not suicidal, but complete depression. And instead of wallowing in my own self pity, I knew there were others suffering like me, and I said, well, if I'm here, how can I help better them in this circumstance? Uh, I lost a bunch of teammates. My, uh, If my teammates were looking at me now, is this a good way to honor them, or would they want to see me crushing it at life or doing some, some other obstacles? Well, and I think we all have that power inside of us. Uh, our circumstances might not be as extreme, but we all have the chance to turn something around and, and turn it for good. Welcome to episode 90 of the AFT Construction Podcast, and we have a super special guest for you today, Dash Dong Wong. And Dash spent 15 years in the Naval Special Forces. He now is the regional sales manager for Killcliffe. And Dash has one of the most unique stories I've ever heard. And I met him. He actually came out for a fundraiser for the Navy SEAL Foundation, which we'll speak about in the episode. And he was the keynote speaker because Dash had one of the most troubling childhoods of anyone I've ever met where he grew up in Honolulu. And his story from the streets to foster care and CPS to the Navy and his view of life, his view of adversity and how that you know, inspired him and changed his direction. And now he's married. He lives in Aspen with his two boys and what he's done for the community. And now is a sales manager for Killcliffe, which is an amazing brand that gives back and is created by former Navy SEALs. Just an amazing episode. You'll truly be inspired from his story. So without further ado, let's jump in. So welcome to the AFT Construction Podcast. And I'm Brad Levin. And today we have with us Dash Dong Wong. So welcome, Dash. Thanks for having me, Brad. It's nice to see you again. Good to see you too, repping the beautiful AFT hat. And for those of you listening, uh, this is an episode I was very excited about. I met Dash a little while ago, uh, actually about a month ago. And Dash served 15 years as Naval Special Forces and currently is the regional sales manager for Killcliffe, or as we say, the assistant to the regional manager. That's what I like to go by. (laughs) (laughs) Anyone that would catch that inside joke. But Dash, I guess to kick this off, what's interesting is, is your name first off, right? And I think that's a good starting point because, you know, in life, uh, whether it be the refiner's fire, as many of us have heard, or adversity, right, that builds character, builds us. And especially in the entrepreneur, when you start thinking about business, entrepreneurship, it's, it's a tough world as an entrepreneur. It's up and down. And really, those entrepreneurs that are positive and have dealt with adversity have become very successful 
And your story has to be one of the most unique I've ever heard. So maybe we start there. Where does that name come from? Uh, so, that, so the name came through some trials itself. Uh, I was born and raised in Honolulu, Hawaii. And uh, from the time of my birth, um, my parents at the time were kind of going through a rough, rough stint. My mom was in the entertainment industry of exotic dancing, if you will. And uh, my father was in the Navy. And so I was an unwanted uh, byproduct of what happened there. So uh, I ended up getting left at the hospital. And uh, while they left me, they uh, one line my birth certificate because they wanted nothing to do with me. So uh, I got nicknamed Dash where I got put into Child Protective Services. And uh, the name kind of stuck. Um, fast forward uh, about six months later, my mom actually reunited with me and took care of me for a bit until... I went back into foster care, but that's how I got the name Dash. The Dong it's, Wong is 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 a is, part of the story. <laughs> yeah, that, that that'll come later. But the Dash, so that's interesting. So I know the nurses from in our conversation they had said you didn't have a name, and so they put Dash, and that just became your name from then on forward. I'm really glad it wasn't hyphen or <laughs> semicolon. <laughs> Yeah, that, that would not be as good as Dash. And so, you know, your childhood was interesting. And I know you've been pretty open about that, especially as you speak, you know, and, and uh, motivate others. And so explain those childhood years, right? These are formidable years. And here you are trying to figure out life as a super young kid, you know, in a very tough environment. Yeah, so I, I guess because I grew up in the fire, I didn't really see my circumstances as something unusual, uh, from my perspective, it wasn't until I got to look at it from the outside in that I was like, wow, that was pretty awful. Um, when I got reunited with my mom, my mom was uh, heavily addicted to methamphetamines and ice and coke. And, uh, and she was also a prostitute and all these other things. But I grew up in that lifestyle and I was, of course, neglected. I grew up in fight clubs and we were homeless for a lot, of, a lot of my childhood, so we'd bounce around from friends' homes to friends' homes till ultimately living on the streets of Waikiki at a bus stop at the age of 10. Um, when we talk about entrepreneurship, like I said, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't ever a mindset of like, how do I grow this business or how do I become successful in this? I literally was selling lays to tourists in Hawaii just to get some money for food or to go play at the arcade. Um, that was kind of my, my beginning part of my childhood. I mean, when you say fight club, I mean, what is that, especially at a young age? Well, because of the industry that my mom was in, uh, there were a lot of what you call pimps or, or owners of my mom in that job field. And because I was so young, uh, they would take me down to Chinatown, which is this area in Honolulu. Um, and they'd put me against other kids my age and we'd fight and they would bet on us. So it was kind of like a childhood fight ring that they had. And it's, and unfortunately it's still going on today. So when I do go back, I do look for those things. And um, if I can outreach to some of those kids, I try to, or I work with the uh, CPS in Honolulu. So that was, that was rough. Um, I definitely got beat a ton, but um, it's interesting because when I look back at those aspects of my life too, where I went into the special forces community, uh, a lot of those things that I learned there related to what I needed to do uh, overseas. So as much as as much as I look at my my childhood upbringing in a in a horrible outlook or a horrible perspective, it really did help mentor me into the person that I was today. Um, I guess my only my only dilemma or my only uh, I guess outlier there would be uh, I just was over passionate with empathy. Uh, I always looked at my circumstance of how I could help others or 
or I always felt someone else's pain before I'd get put in that situation. So I was always trying to figure out ways to not be there or to help somebody else. And, uh, um, that actually helped me get out. A lot of kids in my circumstance end up falling into the, the pathways of the rhythm or the, um, I don't know, just the, the monotony of that type of lifestyle. And they end up just repeating that same cycle that their family was in or the parents were in that they got raised in. I wanted something better. Uh, I knew there was something better out there and I wasn't afraid to try it. So. Well, I love that you share that. I mean, you, you use the word empathy, right? It, I think in today's society, especially if you start looking, whether it be social media or political, whatever, right, there seems to be a huge lack of edification and empathy. And it's interesting. I had an early mentor in my career uh, that was big on edification. You know, he said a lot of times in life, especially as business, as business owners or entrepreneurs, you know, it, 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 there's a grind, there's a drive, right? Speaking of that adversity as you did, Dash, you know, but but that edification you know, a lot of times, whether it be a family member or an employee or someone close, we don't take the time to say, Dash, you're doing an amazing job, right? I appreciate you. appreciate what you're doing, right? And for some reason, whether it's us as human nature, like we just don't give enough edification to build each other up. And to your point, you use empathy, right? And that's where, you know, understanding that Dash has a way of thinking, right? That's different than my own. And it's not that Dash is wrong. It's not that I'm wrong. I mean, we come from different backgrounds, different experiences that have really cultivated who we are today, you know, so why not dive in and try to understand a little bit more about each other and why we are the way we are. And, you know, I'm sure, as you mentioned, I mean, this has really set the tone for where you are now in your life. Yeah, hundred uh, percent. thing that came to mind is love the person, not the action. So when, it, when you look at it in that perspective, I always saw the hurt that my mom was going through. Um, I saw the addiction that she had and the lifestyle that she chose. I still loved her. I, I knew who she was inside, even though the circumstances of what she did were wrong choices. It didn't change the fact of how I looked at her. Um, I didn't I didn't want to be there. I didn't want that to be a part of my life. And I take it as a, as a notion of being a parent now, um, looking at those circumstances and seeing what works and what doesn't. Um, I really do think, like especially when we talk about social media now, we look up to so many of these influencers and other people and their aspects of life. But I think... If you really take a step back and look at yourself, you can you can really understand more from another person or, or or learn more just by trying to put yourself in their shoes, not just listening to everything they put they put on you. I love that, and it's funny, you know, when you say shoes, uh, it reminds me one of my favorite quotes is uh, I complained that I had no shoes until I saw a man that had no feet, right? And yeah. I think that's perspective. I mean, that's always had an impact on me since I was a young teenager and heard that. Just life's a lot about perspective and how we view you know, opportunity, how we view the world. And there's no doubt that, as you mentioned, Dash, I mean, we all come from a different starting line, if you will. I mean, for you, that's, <laughs> here you are as a young, you know, kid trying to figure out life and be self-sustainable and make lays to survive and you're in Fight Club, but here you are now that you've taken that and you've applied certain things to get out of that, which I think is super admirable. So fast forward now, so here you are 10, you know, at the bus stop, you happen to be on your own and you're making lays to survive and, you know, to, to eat and go to the arcade, as you mentioned. I mean, talk about now, now the years that fr from that age, 10, when you were arrested and, you know, for being out after curfew. Yeah. I, I, it's funny. I just, I take my family back to Hawaii once a year just to go to this certain bus stop that we have or that I lived at. And right across from the bus stop was this little arcade hot dog stand. And, uh, it's still there to this day. And I still go on course, different management and whatnot, different arcade games, but uh, it's really good to see where I came from and I don't knock it by any means, but, uh, 
I do have kids now. I got two boys and I, I, I look at them and I wonder like if they were in my circumstance where they were 10, would they have made the choices that I made? I'm like, man, that was, it's so complex now looking back at it as an adult. Um, but as a kid, I was so happy. <laughs> I seriously was. I enjoyed life. I lived on the beach. Uh, I didn't go to school. Um, I used to take McDonald trays and I'd go and body surf with McDonald trays. I didn't have surfboards <laughs> or fins, you know, and uh, a really good uh, business tool that I learned as a kid, as a young age was I couldn't sell a lay just by selling it. I couldn't put a price tag on it and be like, this is $10, like buy this lay. Uh, I was more interested in the tourist or where they were from or, you know, what they like to do or what they were looking for, or just having a casual conversation, building relationship skills at a young age with my audience instead of selling a product was huge to me. And I think it was so huge to me because I didn't have a relationship with anybody else. So these people were literally the people that I got to confide in, or I got to live vicariously through with their family structure and seeing them walk with their kids. I was so intrigued by it and I loved watching it. And I wanted that to be a part of my life. Uh, and that's how I made the sale. It was never selling a product. It was just relating to the customer. Um, fast forward a couple months of living on this awesome fast track entrepreneurial uh, lay stand, a business model. Uh, I ended up getting arrested, not in the in the in the means that most people think. My mom got arrested by an undercover cop uh, while she was prostituting, and because of that, she said, "My son lives here. Uh, he's all alone." So cop casually came by and asked me if I was Dash. And I said, yes. And uh, he's like, please come in my car. Your mom got arrested and uh, we're going to help you and take care of you. Uh, from there, I got put into child protection services again. Um, this time was a lot, uh, it, was, it, was a, it was a lot scarier for me. Um, I was a lot more mature. I, I had a better understanding of what was going on. So if you can imagine a kid being all alone, understanding that his, his mom is now gone, that was the only person that you know, I had to grab onto. I remember going to a facility on the complete opposite side of the island and then going through a medical screening where I had to stand there naked and people looking at all the checking my ears and doing all these things and making sure I was medically good or safe to go into foster care. It was scary. It was a I felt so alone. I felt abused. I felt I missed my bus stop. I missed my routine. I wished uh, I wished I missed all the things that I was that I had before. But I was hopeful that I was going into a new chapter or something better. So I just accepted it. And um, the next, I would say, six to eight months were pretty complicated. So in Hawaii, foster care, they have what's, um, they have like child stay homes where it's basically 12 kids to a home, um, bunk beds, four high in a single room, no relationship with the adults. You're really just trying to just get through the grind with the kids that are there. And then that ended up developing into me getting adopted by uh, the Wong family, which boy, that was, I was very grateful for that. And that comes with this insane twist to the story. My mom dated Andrew Wong. I don't know if this is really off topic, but Andrew Wong and my mom were dating when I was just two years old. So it was a flame that they had. He knew who I was. He would drop me off at his grandparent or his mom and dad's house. They knew who I was as a kid. Um, and he was the only name I could remember of anybody else that actually knew who I was. So his name was Andrew Wong. I told that to the to my CPS agent. They reached out to him. He worked at a mochi uh, factory where he was a delivery man. And when he found out Dash was in foster care, he dropped everything, married his girlfriend, and adopted me as quick as he could, which was wow. it was powerful. 
So now that, my name now my name is Dash Dong Wong. <laughs> that's a, that that's amazing. I mean, talk about you know just how how that 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 circle you know how that comes around and just that influence and and here you are now in in, in a different situation and uh, you know as you mentioned you weren't at school here you are you know using McDonald's trays to surf and you know how did that change now you have to get up to speed in society and, and really, you know, from an academic side and figure out, okay, where do I go from here? Uh, I, I won't lie to you. I hated it. I absolutely yeah. hated it. Um, for those, for those who don't know, uh, being in, raised in a, in a Asian family, um, at least for the family that I was raised by, uh, from the age of 13, it's, it was extremely strict. There were so many mannerisms that I weren't used to. There were so many traditions that I didn't understand, but when it came to academics, that was literally everything. They dropped everything for school. And I didn't start school until I got adopted, so it was the fifth grade. And I was so far behind that, and I didn't get to play with my friends. I no longer had my freedoms to do what I wanted. and no longer, I couldn't just go to the beach and hang out or have my fun uh, recreation activities that I like to do. It was all about school. Um, but what motivated me was I wanted to, I wanted to earn my place. Like, these people went out of their way to pull me out of a rough spot and I was actually cared for and I wanted to honor that. So because of that, I didn't want to, I felt like I could lose it. And that was a scary thing about going from CPS into, into uh, being adopted. I felt like I could lose that family. And uh, a lot, of, I don't think that's a perspective that most of us have, uh, or maybe that is, I don't know, but for me, it was terrifying. So I didn't want to lose this, this group of people who believed in me, who wanted to nurture me. So I did everything I could to honor them. So from the fifth grade to about the seventh grade was really rough. Uh, it was an after-school Kumon, which is like this after-school mathematics program to help you excel in math. It was an after-school reading. And when I say I was behind in academics, it was, <laughs> that's, that's, that's sugarcoating it. Like I, I was, I was not a good student. Um, but I remember in seventh grade, it was, I went to Moanalua Middle School and I started to grasp concepts. I started to, and my thing was patterns. I love patterns and I love mathematics and numbers. Um, and through mathematics, I ended up loving science and through science, I ended up loving reading because they all kind of conjured together and, and helped just this whole basis of learning where I started to enjoy school and then I started to see good grades and then I started getting rewarded for it. And then I felt empowered. And uh, so all these things were going great in middle school and whatnot. And then I saw these JROTC uh, cadets rappelling off a building. And I remember looking at them and I was, I was in the seventh grade and I was like, that is the coolest thing I've ever seen. And I remember all the other kids and especially the girls in seventh grade, they were like, whoa, those guys are so cool. And <laughs> I, wanted to, I was like, I, I want to do that. I wasn't scared of anything. Like, uh, I was body surfing 20 foot uh, uh, shore breaks. Like I, I just wasn't afraid of falling or heights or, or, or scare activities. And I saw these ROTC kids in their uniforms and looking sharp and doing these, these scary things at school when, you know, repelling off buildings was kind of taboo. I was like, I want to be part of that club. That, that's a pretty cool club. And I figured if I, if I could get there, my, my foster family would look at me and be like, wow, you're so amazing. Like you're, we're so proud of you. Um, little did I know that was not what they intended. <laughs> they didn't want any <laughs> part of that. Um, but yeah, that was uh, that was my brain, upbringing in school. Uh, fast forward to high school. Uh, ended up graduating with uh, as a uh, magna cum laude. I had honors. Um, I was in all my AP classes, AP calculus. Um, uh, it was an after school science programs and whatnot. But 
I in I just enriched my entire being into ROTC. I knew I was going to be in the military. Uh, so in high school, I started off in AF, uh, Air Force JROTC. I was wearing the uniform, bald head. Um, at my senior year, I knew I was. I had a package to go to the Air Force Academy. I had a letter of endorsement from Linda Lingle, uh, governor at the time. And I ended up becoming the colonel of the 921st Airborne Division of all of the Hawaiian Islands. So I was in charge of all the JROTC programs for all the seven islands. So it was kind of a big deal looking back on it. <laughs> and uh, uh, yeah, I, I thought that's what my career choice, I thought that's where I was supposed to go. But cry camis aren't from the Air Force, they're from the Navy. So I took a different, <laughs> I took a different pathway, but um, that was my, that was my school. Yeah, that was my pathway there. It, it's interesting to hear that, you know, here you are, you know, this transformation and you're in school and you go all in and now you are magna cum laude, you know, and, and top of your class. And, you know, it's interesting, you know, rewinding back just a minute, you had mentioned a couple comments, even when you're talking about just an early lesson when you're selling lace and you talked about, it's not about just the product, but it's the relationship. And a few episodes ago, I had Timothy Rethlake on, who was big on that, that he said, if you believe and the people, if you have a relationship, if you have an ability to communicate with them, right, that's going to make the sale or the process much easier, which I'm sure for you in life, right, you're selling yourself all the time. You're selling yourself to the Navy. Now with Killcliffe that we'll get into, I mean, it's a constant thing that you have to build these relationships and how key that is to understand that at such a young age. Yeah, and trust. Trust is the big one. You can't really expound upon a relationship without trust. And, uh, I was able to give it up, give it out so freely, which it, def it definitely had its had its kickbacks. I'm sure you can understand that, where you freely give all this trust and you just get burned all the time. But I was okay with it because my whole childhood I got burned and I was always left and 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 abandoned. So I was okay with that. I was okay with failure. Um, but yeah, I think that's what and that was the interesting thing is is getting ranks in AFJROTC. This is like the pre-military structure before you go in the military. You don't gain rank like you do in the military. You don't gain it through accomplishments that you make in school or or missions that you accomplish. You get it by getting promoted by your peers. And I never understood that. But because of my bringing from when I was a kid, I was so invested in everybody in that program. I wanted to know how I could help out every single person uh, or if I couldn't, who could or why they had this relationship with this person, could I could I nurture that or how I could make them better in this aspect of ROTC. And in that, everybody trusted me. Everybody knew who I was. And just I kept getting promoted. And I remember when I got promoted to Colonel, I was I was ashamed of it. I didn't want it. I was like, I I don't want all this authority. I don't want to be looked at as this guy who's gonna, you know, point and give you guys all these missions or all these tasks to do to accomplish. And I never actually had to do that through my leadership process. People wanted to do the work. People wanted to do these things to make me proud of them. Um, that was a really good leadership quality that I learned before going into the military. But uh, yeah. Wow. It, it, it's amazing. And it's, it's, you know, we'll get into the military because I think that's really important, right? Just, you know, of course, we're thankful for your service, Dash, and all that you've done. But, you know, the comment you made too about taking your children as you go back to Hawaii and visit and go to the bus stop, right? And these are memories ingrained in how you know, in the Arcadia or, or the arcade and how that's changed your mindset. And there's a local builder here, Chris with Fitch Hill. And, you know, he, uh, in, in his background, he had struggled with suicide. I mean, there's a time where he said, I'm, I'm going to commit suicide. And 
He actually had drove to a parking lot and he was ready to do that on this day in December. And he did end up taking his life. And he ended up now, he does um, every day on that anniversary, he actually does like a food bank, right? He raises uh, food for the homeless shelter. And he's made that a Memorial Day that he uses, you know, to change not only um, his life and for his family and set that example, but also for, you know, those that, that are in need at that time. And it's interesting how some of us take those deep pain moments as you did and utilize it for good, right? And that's a really tough thing to do. And that's a catalyst to change, in my, in my opinion. I mean, you can sit there and wallow and hate on the world or hate on your circumstance or where you're at, or you can make the decision to grind, as you say, or the change is never easy because it causes forced ref- reflection upon yourself to get better. You're going to have to dig deep and you're going to want to... It, so I'm disabled and we'll probably get into that, but I, I sat there, not suicidal, but in complete depression and... uh and instead of wallowing in my own self-pity, I knew there were others suffering like me. And I said, well, if I'm here, how can I help better them in this circumstance? Or, or if my, uh, I lost a bunch of teammates. My, my, uh, if my teammates were looking at me now, is this a good way to honor them? Or would they want to see me crushing it at life or doing some, some other obstacles? But what your, what your buddy did is, is so powerful in a perspective to have because now he just took a horrible circumstance of his life and he flipped it around. And now it's for the betterment of other people. And I think we all have that power inside of us. Uh, our circumstances might not be as extreme, but we all have the chance to turn something around and, and turn it for good. Things are heating up and we're excited to kick off the summer with our friends at Ledge Lounger, the pioneers of in-pool furniture. Their signature chase is one of the most iconic pieces of poolside furniture you'll see in backyards or high-end resorts all over the world. Visit their Instagram and you'll know instantly what we're talking about. With material rated to withstand chlorine, saltwater, harsh outdoor environments, and withstand of up to 16,000 hours of direct sunlight, it's no wonder the most luxurious resorts trust Ledge Lounger. One of the things we love most about Ledge Lounger is the partnerships to industry professionals that can take many forms from providing inventory to partners or shipping orders directly to clients to providing design services. It doesn't matter if you're a pool or home builder, interior designer, landscape architect, or even a furniture store you will get the same nurtured, hassle-free partnership every step of the way. Ledge Lounger is proudly made in the USA and has expanded to include full collections of in-pool seating, patio furniture, and outdoor games. To learn more or become a dealer, visit ledgeloungers.com backslash AFT. That's ledgeloungers.com backslash AFT. Now, we're super excited to welcome one of our new sponsors to the podcast, Pella Windows. And this is even more exciting because we use Pella in so many of our projects, nearly all of them. And they've been just an incredible partner of ours. And locally, Sammy and Adam, they are not only amazing business partners behind us, but they are super close friends. And I speak on the podcast all the time about the importance of relationships, right? Relationships with our customers, with our vendors, with our suppliers, because at the end of the day, I'm only as good as those that help our brand and assist us in our projects to to take it from the ground up all the way to completion. And if we didn't have partners such as Pella, there's no way we'd be who we are today. Over the years, we've built this amazing relationship. When we call them or email them, they respond. They're quick. Their they're company culture, their integrity, their honesty, you know, they are always there to do what's right for us and the customer. They can do anything from small replacement projects to large custom homes and even multi-million dollar commercial projects. And also, when you think about their product line, they can do ultra contemporary, historical preservation, and large traditional projects. So, 
for anyone, any scale, any size, they're the ones to call. They're here local. You know, they have an amazing Instagram. Make sure and give them a follow to see what they're doing. So if you need windows and doors, give Sammy and Adam a call. We stand behind Pella. We love what they do, their culture, their brand, and especially their quality. And if you want to learn more about Pella Windows, check our show notes. We'll have everything tagged there so you can give them a follow and have their contact information to reach out. And now let's get back into the episode. What changes as far as, you know, when you start thinking about, okay, I'm going to go in the Air Force. No, we're going to go into the Navy. I mean, really, what was that catalyst to say, no, I'm doing the Navy? Oh, man, it's pretty selfish, but it's greed. <laughs> it was money. Um, to make it through the selection phase, I'm a, I was a United States Navy SWIC. Um, I don't know if you guys watch Jason Statham movies, but you ever seen The Transporter? Yeah. Uh-huh. So, so that, you know, he drives around those high speed cars. Well, that's basically what we do for Navy SEALs or any special forces organization, whether it's Army CAG or, or Marine Recon or British SAS. Uh, we basically transport them uh, to where they need to go, fight the firefights that they're in and take them off the X. Um, there was a huge motivational stipend to join and to make it to selection phase. Uh, similar to BUDS, we're at the same compounds as, uh, as SEAL training, I should say, not BUDS, but um, we live in the same compounds. We get beat on the same beaches. Uh, the only difference is, is SEALs have certain expertise of breaching and room clearing. We have uh, certain expertise in uh, maritime interdiction and vehicle warfare. So that was, that was what was so lucrative to me is I could join a special forces group, get uh, it was a $60,000 signing bonus to graduate. And the other part of it was there was only a, uh, there was only a 20% uh, nutrition rate. So a class of, let's say a hundred, only 20 guys would graduate. And that was so, I don't know. I just looked at, I looked at, I looked at it as a, as an awesome challenge, but also I want to see like, am I capable of this? Is this something I could do? And um, we could fast forward to when I, when I was in high school, I went to the Navy recruiter and I got laughed at and that only empowered me even more. I was 120 pounds when I went to the recruiter and that's not special forces material. Um, you know, being five, six, 17 years old, bright eyed whistle kid. And, and um, I remember being on the pull-up bar and looking at all these guys that are about to go to SEAL training. And these guys are yoked. I'm talking, dude, it is, it's a physique chiseled Greek statue of men uh, in their mid twenties. And I'm just this little kid. That's, that's the best way I can put it. I was Captain America without the serum, just this shriveled up little kid, but I was so pumped. I was so excited to be there. And I crushed all the physical, uh, uh readiness standards they had, whether it was the pull-ups, the running, the swimming, the, uh, all of it. I, I just, I crushed it. And it was, it was just something I was really good at. But when it came to carrying weight, I kind of sucked at that. So, um, that was that's what made I I saw that I could I could meet the requirements and I was I could exceed the requirements and I beat all these other dudes that were huge. I was like, well, how much more am I? Like, how much better am I? How much? How far can I push this? So, I ended up joining um, in two thousand and six, uh, and from there, I ended up graduating an honor grad of my class uh, with eighteen students, which was that was a hell of a ride. Um, and I learned so much through that process, but. Yeah, that's where I went with my military career. That's amazing. And so talk about the training side. I mean, when you start thinking about what it requires of you, I mean, were there moments where you felt like I'm not made for this? You know, I, I maybe I should go a different path because, you know, it's asking too much mentally or physically. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. There was, I don't know, if you could, if you could rewind back to where my childhood was, to my life, to where I was in high school, to now being in a special forces program forces forces program the uh all the guys that i saw quit 
shocked the hell out of me. Like when I saw people, we rang the bell just as they do in butts. We'd ring the bell. When I saw people raise their hand or ring the bell and quit, huge guys, men, uh, Olympics uh, uh, swimmers, professional powerlifters, you know, collegiate uh, football players, like all these guys that are just so mature and renowned and, and strong quit. I was shocked. I was blown away. I was like, and the the inside of me, I, I, this, I don't know if it's sadistical or not. I just was like, I'm better than them? Like, what? Like, I'm better than you. Like, wow. But that wasn't my motivation. That was just a little thing I had inside of me. I, and, I, and I remember talking to one of my buddies who quit. We were roommates together, and he was a pref- uh, he was a collegiate football player. I don't know what team he played on. But I was like, dude, what happened? He's like, dude, I'm just done with this. He's like, this is, just, you know, I'm, we're getting beat for no reason. I, this, I know this is just going to compound itself when I get to the teams. He's like, I got a really good gig going. I can go back to playing football. I can make a ton of money. And it clicked to me, like a lot of these guys that quit, not all of them, but most of them, majority of them had an out. They had something that they could go out to. They had a business, the family business that if this didn't work out, then everything's going to be okay on the outside. I did not. If I did not make it through this training and went back to Hawaii, like my father was a tattoo artist, so I'd probably be shaving people's legs for the rest of my life. I did not want that. (laughs) So I was just super pumped up and motivated to make it through training. And it was just... There was no quitting involved. I was like, if I die here, then I died. I pushed myself to the ultimate limit. And there were circumstances in training where that was literally the case. I'll, I remember we're swimming in a, in a pool. We call it pool comp. And we all carry these bricks. And as we're holding these bricks, I was in a, uh, a swimming. I was in a boat crew of six guys. And we all have our brick. We're carrying one brick. And the minute someone quits or, or gives up, they get out of the pool. That brick gets passed on to another teammate. So we had this routine where we had, we had five swimmers, but we had six bricks still. And we kept passing this brick around. As we're passing the brick around, you're getting tired and tired. And you don't know when it's going to end. You don't know how long this exercise is going to go. Um, and it's the middle of the night. And all of a sudden, another guy quits. Now you have four guys and six bricks. Where finally it came down to was just me holding six bricks, sitting at the bottom of the pool, holding my breath. I remember I had them all in my hands like this. And I was at the bottom of a 15-foot pool looking up. I can't see because it's the middle of the night. And I would jump up as hard as I can, get to the surface, grab a gulp of air, and get down to the bottom of the pool and hold my bricks. And I don't, I don't know why I was in this state of mind, but I thought it was the funniest game I've ever played. <laughs> <laughs> and I knew, and this is crazy, I knew it was the last guy in the pool because you can look around. There's nobody else treading water. There's no other boat crews. And I've got these bricks, but no one told me to stop. And I knew the instructors were just waiting until ultimately I passed out. I passed out underwater and I got woke up on the pool deck and I'm coughing up water and I got the whole rest of the day off. But that was the, there was no, there was no limit. There was no, well, this is, I'm not going to cross this threshold or this is too much. I would do push-ups on the pool deck to complete muscle failure. And I'd be flopping on the deck like a fish, just trying to get my chest off the ground because my arms wouldn't move. I thought it was hilarious. And my mindset was, I live on the beach of Coronado in, in San Diego, and I'm getting paid by the military to just flop around on the deck like a fish. Like, this is awesome. You know, I came from nothing. I lived at a bus stop, and I tried to sell lace just to get food. Here I'm getting paid, getting fed, getting housed, and I live on the beach. People pay millions of dollars. I got million-dollar condos just next to me. Tourists are taking pictures of us getting wet and sandy and like rolling around in the sand. They think we're hilarious. I was like, I'm a celebrity. Like, I'm getting paid. This is the greatest. This is the greatest time of my life. And that was my perspective going through 
you know, some of the hardest selection phase training in the military is like, this isn't like a, 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 a challenge or I wouldn't say a challenge. This isn't a make it or break it or a limit or, or, or a test. Like this is just life. Let's just do this. There is no other option for me. And I already had a mission mindset. Like I'm going to take this to the battlefield. So in the battlefield, there's no quitting in war. There's no, I mean, you can, let's be honest. You could, you could run away. But for me, like if I'm out there, I'm going to run forward and I'm just going to, I'm going to go forward with the best that I can. And that's it. Like what else do I have to give? So I kind of went through training in that aspect. And in that, I gained a lot of trust for my, for my teammates, uh, made a really good name for myself. And uh, um, yeah, that's how I, I started in the, I started off my, my career in the special forces teams. That's, that's incredible. And your, and your story is super unique too, because you're, as you mentioned, you served 15 years in the Naval Special Forces. And of course, you know, for NDA and, you know, there's proprietary, you know, we can't share any of those stories, but, you know, as that changed, I mean, what ended that, that service in the Navy and what transpired since? Oh, yeah. Um, so the first eight years of my career, I was in what's called a tier three unit. Tier three is basically you go overseas and you train foreign uh, adversaries how to protect their their homelands or you teach them about counterterrorism and tactics, shooting. Um, after eight years, I got married and uh, I was kind of at a, not a stag, stagnant part of my career, but I definitely wasn't growing. I wasn't getting the cool missions that I thought I was going to be doing. So I ended up screening to go to a tier one unit, basically at, at the president's discretion to go out for do hostage rescue and, and cool things like that. And I remember I was supposed to get out of the Navy. My wife was like, you're done. You're going to SDSU. You got a great GI Bill. Why not use it? Why are you wasting your life away? Uh, and I did this augment deployment with this unit and I was so pumped up. It was everything that I wanted, everything that I wanted to be. It was this brotherhood unit where everyone relied on everybody. There was no micromanaging if you didn't do your job, you were out. They had no time or complacency for it. There was such an honor and prestige of being in this organization. I was like, if I don't try out for this, then I just wasted the last eight years of my life training for it. I, if I'm not going to be the best or trying to be the best, then what am, what am I doing? Um, so I ended up doing that and ended up graduating that as honor grad um, and not tooting my own horn, but it was, it was I got blown away. I was, I, I still had the same drive and still the same gumption to like be the best and, and go out and strive it. And all, I always had a smile on my face. I was like, this, this is it. This is, this is where I wanted to be. And I'm only saying that to lead up to my identity was everything involved into the special forces community. My family, to be honest, and my wife knows this was second. I, everything was about the team, the mission and the brotherhood of my unit the succession of, of our mission and for the betterness of our country. Uh, I had no fear of go, jumping out of a plane in the middle of nowhere into another country to go save not even Americans, but other, other people, other people from other nations. Like I was pumped up to do it because I felt like it was my duty. If I had all the, not a, uh, if I had all the um, ability to accomplish these missions, then why not do it? And I took it upon myself and I, 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 it got to the point where I knew like, if I wasn't there, my teammates, they wouldn't be able to do this mission. That was the mindset I had. That's not true, but that's how I lived it. I was like, I am such an important piece of this puzzle that I cannot fail. I have to work out at this level. I have to shoot at this level. I have to, you know, know all the circuit systems of this radio communications thing. I have to be the absolute best in my field. And, um, there was so much pride in it. There was so much honor. There was so much prestige. Like I felt so good to be at this, this unit. And then, uh, 
It was September 23rd, 2017. We got a call. We had to go on a mission. Um, I had my bags packed. I kissed my wife. Uh, I had a, uh, I had a son dash junior at the time I kissed him. He was just a little infant and I got, I went to work and I don't, I call it a God incident, but my, my corpsman, my medic, he came up to me. He's like, dash, we're doing a jump profile on this mission and your it's called hats, but my high altitude, uh, jump physical was going to expire. So I wasn't legally by the Navy's terms allowed to go on the mission. He goes, but if you go get a chest x-ray right now, we could say you were filling your fulfilling the duties to get your qualification. You can go on the mission. It's like, sweet. Yeah. I'll just go get an x-ray. Got my x-ray. And within six hours later, I had a email from my commanding officer and my command master chief. I had emails from Portsmouth Naval Medical Center. Um, and I was kind of in a shocker. I go into our, where we're going to do our mission brief. Um, before we deploy and everyone's looking at me and uh it was it was scary uh my my chief at the time took me out he's like i don't know if you know this we're not trying to freak you out but they found some stuff on your x-ray and uh you need to go down to medical i'm not i can't tell you about i just don't know about it but they saw something in your x-ray um they found three massive growths on my right lung um and i'm you know, just turning 30. So I'm still super young, extremely fit running. I'm running five minute miles for like 10 miles at a time. Like that's all I did. I had to live up to my name dash. So I had to be fast. And, uh, that's <laughs> like lumps. And I immediately thought cancer, like, how is this cancer? I don't smoke. I don't dip. I don't do any of these things. Like what is going on? Um, and that just led into a nightmare of medical complications and hospitalizations through the testing of these, they couldn't figure out if it was cancerous, if it was malignant, if uh, or what it was, if it was a fungus, if it was a virus. Uh, so I did a bunch of needle biopsies and wedge resections and cracked open my ribs multiple times to figure out what this was until ultimately I was in my bed at my home and I bled out and lost 40% of my blood in my chest cavity. So I was completely anemic, went into, went into shock. Um, and uh, I woke up in the ICU with a chaplain praying over me. And this was, it was just devastating. I, I didn't even have the energy to lift up my arms. I was so anemic. Like I had no blood. And the chaplain was, I remember this chaplain and I, I actually talked to him a couple of years ago, but he was so motivated and smiling and happy. And he's praying on me and he's like, you know, how do you want your children? Uh, how do you want your kids to be raised? And what do you, what do you, what do you envision them doing? And I, and I just clicked. I was like, Oh, I'm dying. <laughs> like, this is it. And, uh, and I just shook my head. I was like, no, I can't. I got raised fatherless. I'm not going to do that to my kids. Like I'm here and I did everything. I'm not just here to leave them. I'm here to, I was here to raise them. And it's like, I'm raising my kids. The Navy SEAL foundation isn't going to raise my kids. I'm doing it. And he's like, you're in really rough shape we still don't know if you have cancer, like all these things. I was like, I don't care. Like I can, I'm, I'm, I just didn't take his, I didn't take his prayer. I didn't, I said some pretty, uh, not nice things to him, but, um, I ended up walking out of that ICU two weeks later. I, I didn't have to get a blood transfusion. I just started walking. I put my gaiters on, I put my shades on and a smile on my face. I had tubes out of my ribs and tubes out of my privates. I had, I had tubes down my throat and feeding tubes. Cause I, I couldn't eat. I couldn't take meds. I, I was constantly bleeding out of my side. I just, I just said, well, this is the way it's going to be. 
kind of like how everything is else led up to my life. Like, here's my circumstances. What are you going to do with it? And am I going to stay here and die? I could have did that as a kid. I could have. I could have just gave up. I could have just let the kid beat the crap out of me in fight club and not woke up. Or could I just keep progressing? Is this my, is this where I quit? I'm going to sit at the bottom pole and just die? Or am I going to keep jumping up and trying to grasp for air as long as I can? I'm going to keep fighting that good fight. And I did. And I kept fighting that good fight. And I walked out of that ICU, not in good shape, but I did it anyway. And um, two months later, I got a phone call from Duke Medical, uh, Duke, what are they called? The Duke Hospital down in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. And I got diagnosed with adenocarcinoma, which was <laughs> it's another whammy. It's like, I just recovered from all these surgeries and all these testing procedures. And I thought I was out. And now I have to go back in again. And uh, so I went down to Duke. I talked to the surgeon who actually developed the uh, lobectomy procedures. And he was, it was such an enlightening perspective. He knew how to relate to me in my special forces capacity of saying, if there was an enemy in a room and you could see him through thermals, you knew exactly where he was and you could take him out before even going in there, what would you do? I was like, yeah, it's a no-brainer. I'd shoot him through the wall. He goes, well, we know exactly what kind of cancer you have. It's right next to your lymph noids. You could try and mess around with it. You could throw smoke uh, flashbangs in there and concuss the guy, or you can try to hope you flush him out with chemo and radiation, or we can just get rid of it. Um, the only downside is I'll never be in the military again. I'll never be able to serve in my capacity again. I won't be able to jump or dive. Um, he's, I'm going to get my lung taken out. And I don't know if it was pride or something to myself, but I envisioned myself being with this one lung warrior still in the teams as like a challenge. I was like, now let's just get this out and I'm going to go back into the squadron and be this one lung guy jumping out with my boys, crushing it overseas. Like, I got this. Let's go. Um, Of course, it's not the case. I'm retired now, but military had other options for me, but that's what ended up happening. Got my uh, multiple lobectomies, got my lung removed. Uh, I actually have one lobe on my upper lobe still attached, but because of the nerve damage from all the procedures, it just doesn't do anything. So I breathe at 49 capacity for my overall lungs, um, which makes it really hard to do a lot of things now. So yeah, I guess the, the, the funny joke that the guys had in the squadron was like, you were like a four stroke that you couldn't get stopped. Now you're a windy two stroke. You got short little <laughs> bursts of energy, but then you're done. He's like, we can yeah. finally beat you in runs. I was like, oh yeah, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They needed some help to take you down dash. Well, it's interesting. I mean, and, and I know part of the story here is that, you know, the Navy SEAL foundation and that they stepped up right to help you and your family you know, get through some of those essential medical procedures, which, you know, uh, you know, for us has allowed you to be here. And so, you know, thinking about that, that's Killcliffe, right? Killcliffe has, you know, was formed by Navy SEALs. I had John Timar um, a few episodes ago on, and he mentioned, you know, the big charity aspect, right? And giving back to the Navy SEAL Foundation to have, uh, you know, to help former soldiers such as yourself, Dash. And, you know, so explain, you know, your role now. Here you are, you have you know, all of a sudden it's quick reset. I'm not going to be in the military. I got to figure out my life. I got to figure out my career. You know, how did that come to fruition for you to join the team at Killcliffe? I'll say that transition part, just for any veteran listening to, or maybe active duty service member that might listen to this podcast. That was the worst. I mean, I had a horrible life or a really tough life. That transition was the worst part of my entire life. When I put my identity in something that could be taken away, it destroyed me. Um, and, I, and especially being with cancer, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know who to reach out to. 
when you say the Navy SEAL Foundation came and support, they didn't just support, like they were the extension of my wife. They, they are the reasons that they called Duke before I did. And they said, hey, we got this service member that needs this procedure. We know about lung cancer. We know you're the best specialist. Will you see this guy? And he's like, yeah, absolutely. And then they would call me and be like, hey, will you go see this doctor? We'll pay for everything. We'll get you a house down there so your wife can stay down there. We'll get you cars. We'll take care of your kids. Like everything's taken care of. They flew in all my friends from Hawaii to be there after my surgery. Like I was just blown away. But now here I am with one lung living in my house, can't afford my mortgage anymore. All my military pay is taken away. Wrecked. I went from being at, at, the, at the ring of a phone to have to be in an airport in 45 minutes to what I'm going to do now. Like who wants, who wants this broken soldier who can't run half a mile anymore? I was like, do I get into real estate? Do I start investing in stocks? Like, I don't know what to do. Like, what am I going to do with my life? And uh, I went to these, it was these, it was called elite meet. It was a veteran uh, entrepreneurship uh, gateway to get you into these jobs. And it was tough. I didn't know how to put on a suit or tie it. I mean, I did, but like, it just wasn't my jam. And uh, I was kind of in a rough spot and my, my buddy from the SEAL Foundation, he's like, you ever heard of Kill? We're drinking Kill Close at the time. He's like, you ever heard of this company? And I did, little did I know Turk and, and Timar were best friends and buds and they grew up in the teams together. So they, they had a strong relationship. And I was like, nah, I don't really have heard of it. He's, and um, here's a segue to it. We were in New York City at VaynerMedia. Uh, for those who don't know, Gary Vaynerchuk, uh, he's this Awesome uh, multi-platform social media expert and, and does a bunch of things for other companies to help promote their business. Well, he uh, invited us up there to, to hear about his, his business models and, and maybe get a, get a, like a, what do you call it? Where you work the apprenticeship working for yep. Vayner mm-hmm. and uh, it blew me away. So here I am sitting with like all the Vayner higher ups, right? Gary's flying in in a helicopter. You can hear it up at the top of the building. There's like this lead up. And he comes in and there's 12 SEALs. There's, I want to say four fighter pilots. There's like six EOD guys. And we're all in suits in this like awesome executive lounge. And the guy looks at me and goes, what the hell do you guys want from me? He's like, he's like, yeah. he's like you guys are the most qualified, most badass special forces fighters in the world. And you're sitting in my office. He's like, I have got nothing for you. You guys have everything. Does anyone have an idea? Does anyone have a product or a thought or, or, um, something that they were, they were dreaming of before the military that you want to do and not a single hand. Oh, one guy rose his, rose his hand. He's like, ah, I got this book idea. And Gary goes, oh, just what we need another book. And, uh, <laughs> and I, I have, I have this passion and it's Volkswagens. I love, I love driving Volkswagens. It's kind of my deal. Um, I love working on them and I love veteran brands. I was trying to build an identity outside of the service that still had a connection to it. So I raised my hand. I was like, I got this idea. I want to highlight veteran brands across America in my Volkswagen. And I want to film like this video series. Like, I think it'd be a cool thing to watch on Discovery Channel, like this, this broken down vet from the Special Forces team, but raising other people up, highlighting their brands. And I also want to tell their story so that service members in could see a very successful way of how to transition out and start a business. I was like, I think that'd be a really cool segue or gateway where we can c- combine this this uh, this scariness of getting out of the military with other people who've already done it. And he looked at me and smiled. And he's like, dude, let me talk to you. Everyone left the room and he gave me this thumb drive. And on the thumb drive, it had exactly how he distrib- uh, distributes social media through all his platforms. He's like, this is how we do it. These are the steps. 
He goes, and the crazy thing is I already put it online. It's free. No one looks at it. He's like, but I'm giving it to you because if this is what you want to do, this is how you do it. It's like, awesome. Fast forward two weeks later, I'm with Turk and talking about Kilclef. He's like, yeah, you should go meet John Timar. And uh, so I go see John and I was like, John, I got this Volkswagen now. I was like, I want to go around highlight veteran brands. And John's like, dude, cool. How can we help? So they wrap my Volkswagen in Kilcliffe with this screaming American <laughs> Eagle and like this American flag on it. I got more Kilcliffe than I know what to drink with. And I just go around and start filming all these veteran brands. And, um, but I got so motivated with the company because their whole motivation of, uh, even from the, the, the startup of where the company came from was to give back to the Navy SEAL foundation. Todd Elrich was our founder prior SEAL as well. Got out right before September 11th happened, saw his guys going into the wars, guys not coming back, guys coming blown up, and he felt obligated. He wanted to do, he's like, I should have been there, but now he's a serial entrepreneur with tech startup businesses. He's like, what can I do to help? He's got this awesome drink. He hates Red Bull, hates Monster. So <laughs> he's like, I've got this drink. All my proceeds are going to go back to the guys to help them out in the capacity that they need. And now here I am, this, this broken down dude. Highlighting other veteran brands, I was like, what a perfect fit for your company and me. I was like, I don't want, I don't need any money, but I think this is just a great relationship, a symbiotic relationship where we can grow our brand together with other veterans and in their businesses and just highlight your brand. So I ended up doing that. And then knowing that that money was going back to Navy SEAL Foundation, we started the million dollar campaign. So I was like, dude, we could make our million dollars to the SEAL Foundation. I know how much my cancer and all the, all my stuff costs. It was a heck of a ton, a lot of money. And I was just, a, I was just one dude. There's so many guys in the hospital right now. There are so many wounded SEALs and special forces operators that you don't, you'll never hear about because we just, you just don't. And they suffer alone and they think they're alone. And that's when the SEAL Foundation comes and does everything for, for them. So now I have this brand that I, I look at it and I don't see like the energy drink that like most people do. I just see this as a gateway to help my guys out. And uh, yeah. I love that. Well, it's interesting. I mean, and I've heard you speak about this in the past too, Dash, is, is value, right? You think about, um, you know, what's the value you bring? And as you mentioned early in your life, right, you understood the value of relationships and, and, and that importance, you know, and how you build that and, and, and believe in what you're doing and, and how that built you for that camaraderie of the military. And then here you are now, you know, that's the value you bring to Killcliff, right? Killcliff looks at you and says, okay, well, Dash is someone that can build relationships. He, he can um, create the synergy, you know, and, and especially with your network that you've built, you know, that's the value asset, right? And that's what any good company wants. They want people that such as yourself that can be out there and represent the brand and be good spokesperson. And that's how companies and businesses grow. Yep. And so how have you liked that now? I mean, you mentioned that transformation. Here you are. The hardest thing is, okay, you had structure to, to some extent, right, in the military. You know, of course, when you're on your missions, it's going to be a little chaotic and not structure. And, um, but, you know, changing that and now you're like having to take a complete career path change. And as you mentioned, for any veterans listening, you know, that's a difficult time is leaving the military and, okay, now I got to get into civilian life. And it's a much different atmosphere. And how do we you know, uh, show our value? How do we build that, uh, you, you know, that network? And so, you know, now what, what excites you now about what's upcoming for Killcliff and what you're doing? Yeah. I mean, a, a lot of things. So I, I guess the, the way I looked at the company was, or, or my transition out from and into the sports drink industry was when I joined the special forces teams, I never shot a gun, never jumped out of a plane, never drove a boat. 
Like I didn't know any of these things, but I was motivated to be a part of it. So I, in, uh, I just engulfed myself into that community. I did the exact same thing with Killcliffe because I was proud of what they do. I knew they made a difference. So I just learned every aspect that I could. I have great mentors at the company. And now I'm in the DSD distribution world. Don't know anything about it. But the best part is, as I said, I'm not afraid to kick down doors. Whoever it is I need to get to, I'll find. And uh, I, t- I take that that aspect into building the cool relationships that I have. Um, what, I, what I'm really excited about, about Killcliffe is is we're the contenders now. We're, we're, we're the competitors against those big brands that, that are untouchable, right? The, the, the companies who have, have made it so high, like you look at the banks, Red Bulls and whatnot, and I'm not afraid to call them out. I think they're great companies. I think they've done a lot of good things, especially in the extreme sports world, but we're different. And I love that about us is because we do know we have the best beverage, but that's not the foundation that we stand on. We've, we stand on something so much bigger and so much stronger. And it's the American spirit that we stand behind. And so our company actually supports our guys and our guys know that. And that branding is everything to me. And it's something that I know our identity as a company won't lose. Um, and that's what just motivates me to the moon about it. I know that everything we do, is just only good. The more our company grows, the bigger we get. When we, when we destroy Red Bull and we take over all those coolers, like that's all going to be our guys. Our guys are going to have all the support they need. They're going to have all the facilities that they need. They're going to have all the, they're just going to have everything. And that's what I want. That's amazing. And so what do you enjoy most about the company, the atmosphere, you know, and the product itself? Um, that's, that's a loaded, that's a, that's a loaded one. (laughs) Let's see. I, well, it's, it's the, it's, it's just, I guess the term we use in the military is big boy rules. Uh, I don't know if that that portrays into the business world because I'm so new to it, but there's there's no micromanaging in, in the aspect of what we do. There's expectations of what we have to hit, but it's really fair game. It's it's you go out there and and make the brand and live it and own it and help us grow this. It's on you. Kind of like how I was one of the teams. I was an expert navigator and my responsibility was navigation. I had to own that and everybody relied on that. When I'm at Killcliffe, working with a distributor or, or getting the brand name out there or training their sales reps on what this product means. Like that's everything. And I love that segue. Like no one's giving me a script and telling me like, okay, here's an ingredients list. And this is why we're different than Red Bull. Or this is why we're, it's like, no, you know what our company stands for. Just go and do it. And I love that, that, that free range that we have the company, but it also takes upon ourselves that, that professionalism. We're representing the most elite special forces groups in the world. It's, and we don't take it lightly. Like when you see the Navy SEAL Foundation on our can, that's not just because you throw a bunch of money at the company or our foundation and now they support you. It's because you embody that organization. You embody that heritage that supports this country. And when we take that to a different rep, when we take that to a different location in the country, we hold ourselves to that standard. And there's a whole lot of pride that comes with it. Um, and that's what I love. I love it. And and I love that you pointed that out, you know, as we close here to be sensitive to your time, Dash. But what's interesting is you and I met at a fundraiser here in Phoenix, you know, not too long ago. And and this is a true testament to Killcliff and what their brand is, right? Some companies may portray something or say something, but Killcliff does it with what they give back to the Navy SEAL Foundation and how you stood up and you were the guest speaker and spoke about, you know, just that transformation about how at a time in your life when not only financially, but you needed that support system and the Navy SEAL Foundation was there for you. And that's, it, it's amazing, you know, that 
one thing I do love about our country, especially is the, the charitable aspect, right? I mean, people are very charitable with time and money and, and effort and, you know, and it blesses lives of all of us, including yourself. And so I love that mission. I love that that's a huge part. And that's, in my opinion, why you guys have been so successful. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. And you've been amazing, Dash. And so for, you know, I, I still, every time when I first heard your story and I was speaking, you know, to some of your network, I mean, it was just amazing. And then you, you crushed, you know, your public speaking address. And so for those that want to understand more about your story and what you're doing with Killcliffe and just, you know, uh, your marketing skill set, right? <laughs> you know, where can our listeners find you and follow you? Uh, so I'm still developing it for sure, but uh, I'm on Instagram, Dash in a Van. I still kind of kept that motto because I traveled the country in my Volkswagen. So um, as far as, uh, as you know, I'm, I'm Facebook or LinkedIn, it's just Dash Wong if you guys want to find me there. But uh, I'm really uh, leveraging my platform on Instagram to motivate people uh, in all aspects of their lives, sharing aspects of my childhood and how I overcame it um, just to help them raise themselves to the next level. Or, I mean, I'm actually a uh, real quick note. I just joined this awesome challenge called the Mount Albert challenge. Um, me, uh, the world's strongest man, Steve Foshin, who just blew up both his quads at his last competition and, uh, a soft Dory who used to be a sheriff down in Florida. He also was, uh, in the Israeli special forces lost his leg. Uh, we all had this, this, uh, this, this circumstance that made us lose our career. But because of it, we knew how to overcome it through community. And uh, we're trying to empower other people to do the same thing, to find other vets that are wounded just like you and overcome a goal. So we're going to hike the uh, highest 14er in the Rockies uh, come September 17th just to show them that we can overcome anything and so can you. Uh, so the Mount Albert Challenge is one of them on Instagram. But if you just look at Dash in a van, you'll see all our stuff. Well, and one thing we didn't touch on is that not only did you have one lug and you were fighting that through lung cancer, but you also had COVID, <laughs> which destroyed your last remaining lung. And so here you are still active, physical. I mean, it's just amazing, you know, what, what you know, the example you set for us. Yeah. Just don't live in fear. Just overcome it. It's, it's just nothing but a thing. You just keep pushing it. The, str the struggle will make you stronger, but you got, you have to want it. You just have to keep wanting to push the limits. Uh, and just don't get stagnant. Don't get stale in your career. Don't don't fall into a routine. Always change your routine. And uh, yeah, we can say all this, the silly seal slogans you want. Like the only easy day was yesterday, but I think we everyone knows those. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, I appreciate that, Dash. Thank you for making time for us today. No, thanks for having me. It's good seeing you again. So thank you all for tuning into the podcast today. And just as a recap, if you check the show notes, they're just going to have all the links for the topics that we discuss. And also one of our favorite features now is the chapters that go through the conversation. So if there's certain topics you want to revisit or listen to, they're outlined by the time that we discuss those. And again, we can't thank you enough for all of your support. Please make sure and download our podcast, subscribe, give us a five-star rating and review wherever you download your podcast.